This is Glenn Crooks on frame. The winningest coach in the history of the U.S. women's national team, Jillian Ellis. She coached her final match on Sunday after five years and two World Cup championships. Our Alicia Delgallo, the executive editor of Pro Soccer USA, sat down for a wide-ranging exclusive interview with Ellis, her overcoming discrimination, critics, and players' doubts to become one of the world's most successful coaches. That story was published in Pro Soccer USA on October the 3rd, and Alicia, she's here with us today on frame to share the memorable moments of their conversation. There has been speculation that the next step for Ellis is coaching men, maybe in MLS. Well, the 2019 MLS playoffs are upon us. First-round matchups are set for October the 19th and 20th. For New York City FC, they will enjoy and maybe get a little fidgety at the same time as they await their opponent in the Eastern Conference semifinals October the 23rd at either Yankee Stadium or City Field. New York City earning a first round bye by finishing atop the East, six points clear of second place Atlanta United. New York City closed the regular season with a win in Chester, Pennsylvania, 2-1 to one over the Philadelphia Union, who finished third in the conference. Having clinched the top spot for the first time in club history a week earlier, the primary thought about the Philly game for Dolme Tehran, New York City, get out of Talon Energy Stadium with no injuries. No such fortune. In the final moments of City's warm-ups, their leading goal scorer, Eber, strained a calf muscle. So Ronald Batarita, who was essentially given the day off by Tehran, was summoned to the field. Captain Alex Ring. It's the only thing you can do, you know, you have to always be ready when you get the chance. And uh, Imata usually plays and I still think uh, he came in fantastic. I don't know if he even warmed up <laughs> because I think Eber injured himself in the last sprint. Well, Matarita's warm-up, it was on the field just before the whistle for kickoff. He was doing agility movements, doing his best to get ready. Then seven minutes later, he scored his first goal of the season, playing left wing. Later, Ishmael Tajiri Shradi made it 2-0 with a left-footed strike from the top of the box that deflected over Union's keeper, Andre Blake. And then 10 minutes later, Shradi went down with an ankle injury and he was replaced by Jesus Medina. The status of Eber and Shradi has yet to be announced by the club, although Shradi posted a message on his Instagram account that the injury was not serious. Ring said the extra time for his teammates to heal, plus a well-played match at Philadelphia, gives him a good feeling going into the international break. Yeah, I mean, for us, maybe the break is good, uh, considering some players having knocks. Um the national team break uh, coming in, uh, it's important to win before the national team break because you don't have the team together for 10 days. I know how it was when I used to play. Uh, you go away and you think, oh, no. you know, we didn't play that well. And then you, you have two, three days before the game start again. So I think now it's just a positive for us. We have to try to take advantage of it, uh, get the guys fit and uh, hope no one comes back injured. Seven of Ring's teammates are off with their national teams, Matarita and uh, Alexander Matriza, Alexander Collins, Maxime Cheneau, Sean Johnson, Tony Rocha, and Valentin Tati Castellanos, his first call-up with the Argentinian U23s. When they return, City will prepare for the winner of the Toronto-DC United knockout match. And with the Yankees playing so well in the MLB postseason, it's become more likely that the home playoff match will be played at City Field, the home of the Mets. 
Ring didn't seem to really care about the home site. Uh, he was in the lineup one of the two times New York City FC was forced out of the Bronx. It was Decision Day 2017 against Columbus Crew SC at City Field. Can always make it a home game no matter where we play in New York. <laughs> uh, no, I, I didn't mind. We played Columbus, I think, yeah, yeah. last regular season game 2017. Yep. Uh, I thought I didn't have any problems playing there. I don't have any problems playing in Yankee Stadium as long as we win. Fun fact, City backup keeper Brad Stuver. He was in goal for Columbus at City Field that day. So it's Toronto or D.C. United. What's your preference? Well, first Toronto, then Ring, and then Anton Titterholm. Any preference? The preference is uh, arriving in the best form in the first game. After that, uh, I don't have to control. <laughs> about uh, this year, about Toronto, is uh, uh, what happened, happened, and we have to be ready to play against uh, DC, against Toronto. No, because uh, no matter what, we just have to win, win three games to be able to compete for the cup. Doesn't matter, we're gonna, we're gonna win. And uh, Toronto FC will host DC United on Saturday, October the 19th. It'll be six o'clock Eastern. Next week on Frame, a Pro Soccer USA bonanza. Uh, we're going to preview all six opening round games in the MLS Cup playoffs with the writers who cover the teams for PSUSA. So for each preview, the journalists for both sides will join me. And with all due respect to my friends elsewhere in the soccer media world, uh, there will not be a better, more comprehensive preview of the entire first round than right here on Frame. Alicia Delgallo is the editor and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA. Recently, she sat with the outgoing U.S. Women's National Team coach Jillian Ellis, FIFA's 2019 Coach of the Year, after winning her second consecutive World Cup. Alicia's here to tell us about the interview, her story published at ProSoccerUSA.com. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Good. How are you? Your story, I know, uh, was a hit in the community. I know a lot of people... Uh, have read through it and maybe learned a lot more about Jill Ellis than uh, any of us uh, really knew. Just tell us about the, the setup, how you got a chance to sit with her. Were you at her house or wh where exactly did the interview take place? Yeah, so I went to her home in Palmetto Bay, Florida, and uh, we started there in the morning. And then she drove me with her over to her daughter's school because she had a Q&A session with some of the kids, like a student-led Q&A session. And then after that, we went back to her house and finished up the interview and had lunch together and kind of just took that that time needed to get to know her on a level that I think hasn't really been done during her five years um, in charge of the team. No, and that's uh, the comfort level to get into somebody's home and their environment. Uh, there might be a tendency to, uh, well, maybe talk a little bit more about themselves than they might normally. <laughs> yeah, and she, you know, as most people know, notoriously kind of quiet, um, keeps to herself, doesn't like to be in the spotlight. And so we touched on all those aspects about her personality and, you know, how she went from being a really, really shy introvert to leading kind of the biggest, most um, outspoken U.S. Women's National Team ever. Yeah, well, that's... Uh... That's a, quite a, a growth curve there in terms of, <laughs> you know, when you're on the world stage like that, uh, so much has happened over her five plus years uh, with the team. But let's talk about the uh, the introspective Jill Ellis. Uh, so what was it that uh, 
uh, was there, were there certain things that happened in her life that, that made it that way? Um, and, and how did, uh, how did that growth happen? Yeah. So at first, I mean, anybody that has been around the team knows that she's more of a quiet person. But, um, when I was speaking with her daughter, Lily, she said, you know, her college friends tell me how shy she was in college. And I just don't believe them because she's so goofy at home. And, you know, she started telling me these stories. And so when I went back to the house to talk to Jill and finish up the interview, I kind of asked her, were you always um, a shy kid? You know, this is what your daughter said. She can't believe how shy you were in college. And Jill kind of thought for a second and said that she thinks she was a bit more outgoing growing up in England. And the really shyness kind of started after she moved to the U.S. She had a really, really thick accent. People couldn't understand her. They looked at her weird every time that she talked. Um, So it kind of made her withdraw a little bit. She didn't want to order meals at restaurants. She didn't want to say her name because nobody could understand her when she said Jillian. So that's actually why she started going by Jill. And um, she didn't want to be anywhere without her friends. So she actually told me, and this didn't make it in the story, but she told me that um, when it was time to go to college, she just asked her friends where they were going and they said, William and Mary. <laughs> and she said, okay, that's where I'm going too. And she visited and she did like it and she loved it there. But that's kind of what initiated her interest in college as well. That's funny. Well, John mm-hmm. Daly, the head coach of William & Mary for many, many years. Uh, I wonder if he knows that uh, as hard as he may have recruited her, that yeah. she had kind of already uh, made up uh, her decision. We're with uh, Alicia Delgallo, uh, the editor of Pro Soccer USA, who uh, recently uh, scripted a great story about Jill Ellis uh, on the inside. You know, and it's uh, this was exclusive and uh, the, the chance to, to be in, in her environment. Uh, you wrote that uh, she's a wife. Uh, Mm -hmm. she's also a mother, a pet lover, and a peacock caretaker. So I want to get into, uh, you know, her relationship a little bit, uh, being a gay coach of women and how that all progressed for her. But can we start with the peacock (laughs) or the peacocks? I guess there's a bunch of them. Yeah. That was the first thing I noticed when I took the turn onto her street and pulled into, pulled into the driveway that there were about five peacocks out front. And I thought that was awesome so it was one of the first things I asked about I said hey you got some peacocks out there that's pretty cool and she said yeah you know I promised the the former owner when we bought this house that I would continue to take care of them because he had taken care of them and she said that you know at any given time sometimes of the day there might be 50 peacocks in like crossing in front of her front yard that she feeds and takes care of and you know, throughout, if you're just sitting in her house, you can see out into the backyard too. And there will just be random peacocks kind of walking around out there as well. So it was pretty cool to see. Wow. So uh, have you now been able to distinguish what a, a, a male peacock and a female, I guess they call the females peahens. Uh, did, <laughs> yeah. you, did you learn about the peacock culture at all? Uh, we didn't go into depth too much, okay. but I know, I know a little bit about that on my own. All right. So the, um, so you mentioned her daughter, Lily, and her wife is uh, Betsy Stevenson, and they've adopted, uh, they had adopted uh, Lily. Can you tell that story a little bit about uh, where Jill and Betsy met? And then, you know, this is, uh, this is a time where uh, you're coaching women uh, on the collegiate level and the, and the different things and aspects that you might have to, uh, to deal with being a gay woman. Yeah, so 
They actually met uh, in 1999. They had known each other for a few years before they started dating in the early 2000s. And um, Jill said that she knew Betsy for years and actually didn't know that she was gay. So um, then they they connected on that level. Um, Betsy was at UCLA. She was a women's athletic director there. And she took a job as an AD at Emory. And that's when they were apart, they decided, you know, what are we doing? Why are we living apart? Kind of decided to become a family. And so Betsy had been looking to adopt uh, for a little bit and they decided to do it together. And they got a call about a, a baby in Mexico that was up for adoption and went to see her and brought home Lily. And then uh, Betsy moved back to LA and she took a job um, as a fundraiser, I believe, with a children's hospital out there. Um, and that's really the first time that Jill told me she came out to her her players and her staff is when she had Lily in her arms and told them that her and Lily and Betsy were going to live as a family. And she said she cried and it was a really, a really amazing moment for her. Now, was that at UCLA or was it after that? Because 12 years, uh, Jill Ellis was the head coach at UCLA, eight mm-hmm. Final Fours, so lots of success there. And obviously that's where they initially met. Yep, it was at UCLA. Okay. So the now uh, she departs UCLA and, and starts getting involved uh, with the U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation uh, as an assistant coach, eventually becoming the head coach. And there, uh, despite her success, Alicia, along the way, there, there, has, there have been a lot of critics, uh, me included, during the 2015 World Cup. And some of it was uh, her tactical acumen. Uh, others was player management, uh, personnel choices. And she seems, uh, the, the, the credit I give Jill Ellis all this time is that she has always remained stoic. It doesn't seem like it's uh, affected her. Maybe deep inside it has. Mm-hmm. What impression did you get looking her straight in the eye when you were talking about this stuff? Yeah, she always maintains, and, you know, I put it in there, and that's one of the interesting things about her. She always kind of maintains the same personality, the same kind of even-keeled message, no matter what situation she's in, no matter what questions are being asked. So I, I think that's a, a skill of hers. <laughs> and But I think there's always a lot going on behind the scenes, too, um, when it comes to playing with different personnel that maybe even people who are really familiar with the game or watching and following the team really closely might not realize. So I think that, um, yes, she had challenging moments and emotional moments throughout the, throughout her career with the U S women's national team, but kind of what you see is what you get. She really, as soon as she took the head coaching job, she got off social media almost immediately. She said, so she kind of, kept a distance from that so that she wouldn't have the emotional toll of seeing all of the backlash or all of the criticism that can come with social media. And she said that really helped her as well. Of course, she can't escape all of it because just, you know, just during the two months of the World Cup, something would happen on Twitter. Someone would say something on Twitter. Someone would say something on the radio. And she's in a press conference the next day and getting asked about it by 50 journalists. Right. So right. She knows she knows the big things. She knows what's going on. But as far as the the kind of 
criticism from like the masses that can occur on Twitter, she kind of insulated herself from that. Yeah, and she had a, a lot to answer to it. Uh, you were in France and you were at uh, these press conferences with uh, the outspoken Megan Rapino, uh, with mm-hmm. uh, the 13 goals against Thailand and the backlash there. I mean, how, uh, how did she handle all that? I mean, the same way she handled a regular question. Like, she always has kind of this, you know, half smile on her face but focused look in her eyes and she answers pretty straightforward um, based on what she thinks and and what she believes. And she kept it focused on the soccer a lot while kind of, you know, supporting her players saying that she supports their right to speak out, but she would never insert herself into or her beliefs into the conversation. Yeah. And that's such a balancing act. So here she is. She's a U.S. soccer employee Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, she's got her team suing U.S. soccer. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we have to even take it, uh, any further steps, but this this equal pay thing has been on, on the charts for uh, at least a couple of years, if not more. Yeah. And uh, so how th- you, you know that the players feel her support by some of the quotes you'll read from them, but she really can't step over the line. Yeah, and I mean, that can be – she had a balance set as well, especially being – a female coach who probably was uh, severely underpaid during a lot of her time coaching as well. So um, I think she, I think she did well with the, with balancing that. I think it was a tough position for her to be in. And I know that it was a tough position for her to be in because um, her daughter knew all about it as well. Lily is very astute and very observant and the, you know, one of the first things I said when I asked her what it was like to see her mom go through this whole coaching issue was, you know, she had a lot to deal with and it it can be tough dealing with equal pay and um, working for her employer and not yeah. being able to say exactly what she wanted to say and things like that. So, so I think it's, she did what she could in, in the situation. Yeah, and uh, we sometimes forget there are children involved, that these are human beings, and uh, mm-hmm. we, uh, you know, and what uh, a kid like Lily might see herself uh, in the social media realm. Uh, Alicia Delgallo uh, sat with uh, Jill Ellis, the outgoing U.S. Women's National Team coach, two-time FIFA Coach of the Year, but it wasn't always uh, that easy. Uh, we've talked about a couple of things, but in the Olympics 2016, that was pretty much a disaster. And then there was some unrest among the team. You, uh, you quote her father as saying, uh, you're not a coach until you get fired. Uh, I, I'm wondering, did she expect to get fired after the Olympics? Um, she expected what happened. So she, it wasn't a surprise to her that the players were unhappy with her uh, at that time. And she expected them to you know, go to Sunil and, and kind of complain and ask for a new coach. All right. So, so she, she she knew that was going on. <laughs> she knew that was coming. Yeah. But, um, based on her experience, because this is a highly competitive team that wants to win. Um, and it had happened in the past to other coaches. So she, it wasn't a surprise to her. Yeah, so I'm saying it even happened to Tony DeChico, who, you know, over the over time may have been the most uh, popular uh, among 
uh, the U.S. Women's National Team coaches, and that's the uh, the gentleman, uh, the late Tony DeChico, that she surpassed with a recent win on the Victory Tour. So I think uh, you know. <laughs> There's a, there was a recent discussion, the Mount Rushmore of uh, soccer on the men's and women's side, and uh, and on the women's side, who who gets placed there? Uh, is it Jill Ellis? Is it Tony DeChico? Or both? Uh, is it Anson Dorrance, who did so much for the game and won the first ever Women's World Championship? But uh, what is her what is her legacy now as she departs uh, the federation? What do you, what do you think? I mean, I kind of agree with her and what she says when people ask her that question that it's not we don't know it yet and it's not for her to tell people what her legacy is it's for the world and everybody else to determine what her legacy is uh as time goes on so as as the program progresses as we see what happens next and looking back then you'll know really what her legacy is but we know for sure that it is in this moment as the winningest coach in program history the only woman or the only coach to win two Women's World Cups, the only woman to win back-to-back World Cups. Um, you know, she has a lot of accolades to her name. She's leaving on top of the program, and that will certainly all be um, remembered. And is this meaningful to you? I mean, you're a you're a female uh, in a in a soccer environment on a very consistent basis. When you see a woman uh, with this sort of accomplishment, is, do you think that's that's meaningful to your gender? Um, I think it should be meaningful to everyone, regardless of of gender. Um, just seeing someone be so successful in a career um, and know the struggles that it took to get there, I think that can be translated to all different types of struggles uh, across genders, across races, and across life. Yeah, and it's not just uh, she's a woman, she's a, a, a gay woman who uh, has uh, had a high level of success and has had to deal with some of uh, that sort of discrimination as well. I mean, did you get into that uh, at all, that aspect? Yeah, so, um, I mean, she told a really poignant kind of anecdote that was in the story about a moment that she had, just to give an example of some of the things that she went through in, you know, the 80s or early to mid-90s when it was a really different landscape for LGBTQ people and especially in coaching and in sports so being a woman um where she sat down with the father of a recruit and she was just kind of doing the interview and asked you know why he decided or why they decided to homeschool their daughter and his answer was uh because he didn't want her corrupted by homosexuals wow so she navigated that as part of part of the reason why she wasn't comfortable sharing her personal life for a really long time um, why she didn't come out for a while. And it also added to that kind of reserved, withdrawn personality that she had. And, and did you get into at all what's next for Jill Ellis? I, there's been speculation she wants to maybe move on to the men's side, maybe MLS. Uh, was there any uh, sort of chat about that? Yeah, I got, yeah, we talked about that, obviously. Um, she mentioned the different opportunities that have been thrown her way. I got the feeling that there's not, not really anything that I wouldn't say that she wants anything specific right now. Yeah. She's going to kind of take her time to evaluate the different opportunities that come her way and then make a decision. But right now she's just really looking forward to being at home for a little bit. And uh, Lily is a freshman in high school. So the next, these next couple years are going to be important and probably tough 
for her and she's glad that she's going to be around for that more and um yeah some of the opportunities she got were or have been mentioned to her have been coaching a men's team or another national team um speaking opportunities writing opportunities things like that so there's a lot of different things for her to consider well alicia some great insight uh everyone go to prosoccerusa.com uh under alicia delgallo the the headline jill ellis content as she closes u.s women's national team career marked by unprecedented success and challenges and we learned a little bit about that uh here uh alicia before i let you go you are the uh, co-founder of Pro Soccer USA, and mm-hmm. we've been involved now for, I guess, about a year and a half So uh, since the launch. So uh, what is your assessment of, uh, of the progress of the publication, and, uh, and where are we going next? Yeah, we've made a lot of progress in the last year and a half, right? You've been right there for it all. Um, but so in the, the first year, it was all about laying the foundation and despite being part of a larger company, Tribune Company, we've really been operating as kind of a startup mentality, grassroots growth type of um, website and news site. And I think have have gained the trust of readers in, in what we cover and in our writers across the country. So moving into next year, I'm really looking forward to kind of expanding that footprint and the awareness. And we have some exciting things going on where we're going to be working more closely with with the different markets in our company and Tribune, um, different collaborations. We also, you know, in March, we did our first Youth Cup down in South Florida, and we have another Youth Cup now in January in Orlando. And so we're hoping to expand on on the event side of things as well. All right, Alicia, Alicia Delgallo, uh, she is the editor and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA. Uh, thanks, and uh, I guess we'll talk again soon. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Glenn. If you like MLS, next week's show could be for you. A thorough preview of all six opening round playoff games with beat writers from each city providing their analysis. Well, thanks for joining. Be sure to subscribe and provide feedback available on TuneIn, iTunes, and Spotify. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.